0: Alright, good morning, Salt City. My name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here and a church planning candidate. And we're going to keep going in our series through the pastoral epistles. We're in 2 Timothy. I wanted to start out today with a quote that I have always found deeply fascinating. So it's a quote from uh, Blaise Pascal, who was a French philosopher. He was a scientist. He was a mathematician. All-around smart guy, okay? And he was also a, a Christian, And this is a quote that from what I've observed of human nature, from what I know to be true about how we work and how we relate to the world and relate to God, I I think this is true. So I want you to listen in. Here's a quote from Pascal. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The course of or the cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. And then listen to this. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man. Man, that last statement is staggering. So, so when he's saying this is the motive of every action of every man or every person... He's talking about the pursuit of your own happiness. And so this is what he's claiming is that you have not made a decision today, you won't a, make a decision tomorrow, you've never made a decision in your life except for in the pursuit of your own ultimate happiness. And even when it seems like that's not true, even when you're, you're doing something that uh, maybe you don't enjoy doing, the reason you're doing that thing is because of some great, greater ultimate happiness. So let's say you're going to your job that you don't enjoy. You're going there because you want to provide for your family. Maybe you're doing something for someone that you don't necessarily want to do, but it's important for you to save face. In other words, your actions are always motivated by this pursuit. And you actually can't live any differently. It's hard to even imagine the concept of you not pursuing your own happiness. It's the motivation of everything you do. And so because of that, your life... What you give time and energy to, what you pursue and what you reject is a reflection of what you believe will make you happy. Or it's a reflection of what you believe is the good life. And so according to this principle, I want to ask you, why do you fall into sin at times? Why do all of us fall into sin? Well, in almost every circumstance, it's not because we don't know what's right and wrong. It's because in the moment, you believed that that action would result in your happiness. You believed that sin and the rejection of Christ in that process was the good life. And alternatively, when you reject sin and self-indulgence to follow Christ, it's because you're believing the truth of Psalm 16, that Jesus is the path to life, and that in his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand is pleasure forevermore. When you pursue Christ, it's because you believe that he is ultimate joy. And so life, all of us, are on two pathways in life. Life is like Two divergent lines into eternity. On one line moving up is the life of obedience to and enjoyment of Jesus Christ. A life of following him and that pathway leads to eternal life forever. The other life going the opposite direction is the pursuit of anything and everything other than Jesus Christ. And that line leads ultimately towards death and which of those pathways you are on is primarily determined by what you believe the good life is. What you believe will bring you ultimate happiness in the very core of who you are, what you believe. And so what Paul is urging Timothy in our text today He's urging him to endure to the end and to encourage other people to do the same. He's talking about what it would look like for you to get to the end of your life leaning into the tape, still following, loving, and enjoying Jesus. And he's saying that pathway is actually a really difficult pathway. And so you need to do things to intentionally pursue Christ so that you don't end up denying him and wandering into something else. And if you believe that that's not something that you could possibly fall into, you're part of the way towards that denial. You have to actively put on the truth that Jesus Christ is the best life imaginable, that he's the best thing about life, and that it's worth it to pursue him even when it's difficult in this world. And so what we're talking about today is how you endure to the end. How you make it to the end of your life still following Jesus. And three things I want to point out about how you follow Jesus for the rest of your life is you remember, you flee, and you pursue. You remember, you flee, and you pursue. So let's take remember. There's actually two parts given in this text about how we remember. So first, we need to remember Jesus' resurrection from the dead in order to endure to the end. And second, we need to remember our own future resurrection with Christ, the promise of reward that we have coming with him. So the first one, remember Jesus' resurrection. This is 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 8. 2 Timothy, towards the back of your Bible. 2 Timothy 2. Starting in verse 8, he says this, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. So Paul, who wrote this letter, is telling Timothy to remember Jesus Christ. And then he gives two descriptions of the nature of Jesus Christ, and therefore why it's relevant that we remember him to endure to the end. The first description he gives of Jesus Christ is that he is risen from the dead. And the second is that Jesus is the offspring of David. So risen from the dead is communicating the divinity of Jesus. It's communicating his ultimate power. Because Jesus rose from the dead, nobody and no one successfully opposes him. His power is boundless. No one can fight with Jesus successfully. Nobody can restrain what he wants to do in the world. At the end of the day, what ultimately happens is because Jesus says so, he has unrestrained power. Power And that was evidenced in his resurrection from the dead because Satan, Jesus' enemy, threw every single thing he had at Jesus, but he couldn't stop him. He threw death itself as at Jesus, which was the ultimate enemy of every human being who's ever lived. Satan threw that at Jesus and it only declared him as stronger because he conquered it. He defeated it. So Jesus is ultimate power. He defines what power is. But second... Jesus is the offspring of David. So that's communicating there that Jesus is a part of this royal lineage promise throughout history that the Messiah, the Savior, would come from. But I think even more than that, Paul is pointing out that Jesus was a person. He's of human lineage. He had a mom and a dad. He is a person. Think about this. Jesus was an infant. Jesus helped create the world. He was part of creating the world, which means that He designed human beings to walk. So He designed the muscles that we have in our body and our legs in order to walk. Tendons were His idea. He created toes so that we could stand on feet. But the person who made legs had to learn how to use them. And He went through a process of stumbling and falling and scraping His knees and crying. He was weak. He had to be taught how to live as a human being because he embraced that that humility. And so Jesus, yes, is powerful, but he's also humble. He's relatable. So he's both powerful and, and meek, relatable. Think about how incredible that combination is. So most of us know personally or know of powerful people people that can affect change in the world and we like people like that because they can affect that change that we need but more often than not not those people are not relatable they're not the people that you go to when you're suffering and in pain they're not the people that you go to when you need a shoulder to cry on Rarely do you see both power and relatability in one person, but in Jesus you find both. And not only do you find both, but you find the fullest extent of both. He defines power and he defines meekness, relatability. And so here's what that means, is he is the ultimate advocate when life gets hard and when you want to give up. When you're doubting, when you're caught in sin, when you're suffering, when you lose someone or something that's important to you, you will not find a better resource to walk through that moment than Jesus Christ Himself. Because Jesus can affect change in the world. He's promised that nothing can separate you from God's love. And nothing ever will. He can seal you for the day of your inheritance. He can protect you and guard you. He's powerful enough to do that. But he also said that you can call him a friend. And when you're in pain, he knows what that's like because he became the type of being that could experience pain, that could become killable for you. He wanted to relate to you and empathize to you in your weakness. And so if you currently, I know there's people in this room if you currently are struggling to hold on to Christ, if you're considering whether it's worth it to follow him, or if you're not currently experiencing that, you will at some time in your Christian life if you choose to follow him. Here's what I want you to know. If you're in that moment and it feels like Jesus isn't enough, it's because the Jesus you're believing in is not the real Jesus. That's not him. The real Jesus who rose from the dead He is enough. He is sufficient to help you endure. He is powerful enough and relatable enough to keep you walking on the pathway towards eternal life forever. He is sufficient and so run to the real Jesus. I love that scene shortly after Jesus raises from the dead when he goes out to the water and his disciples are fishing and they haven't caught anything and he tells them to throw the net on the other side and They reel in this massive haul of fish and they realize that it's Jesus. And Peter, in his excitement, just jumps out of the boat (laughs) and swims the shore. And he walks up on the shore with Jesus, and Jesus is just cooking him some breakfast. And they just sit there and they eat breakfast. And there's so much to hash out, like what happened in your death, Jesus? What's going to happen now? How do we live as the church? But they, it doesn't seem like they're hashing any of those things out because it's just enough for Peter to just be in the presence of Jesus. And it kind of just settles everything down for him. When he saw Jesus on the shore, it didn't matter that they had just hauled in this massive catch, it didn't matter how much money that was worth. All he wanted to do was just be with Jesus. And so he swam to the shore to eat breakfast with his resurrected king, Jesus, was enough. So that's remembering Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He tells us to look back on that when we're struggling, but he also tells us to look forward to our future resurrection in Christ. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says this, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Do you notice here that he is unashamedly offering you eternal reward for following Christ? Okay, we, we do not believe the prosperity gospel. We do not believe that following Jesus will make your life better in this life or will make you more money or, or will necessarily heal you. We don't believe that, but we do believe what the Bible teaches which is that following Christ is worth it, and that anticipating the reward of knowing Jesus is a valid motivation for following Jesus. It's very unashamed in what it's advocating for, that if you will follow Christ, one day you will live with him and you will reign with him. It's offering you that reward. So we're going to talk about that reward a little bit more in a second. But I I just want to talk about and think about why is it that we need this promise of future reward to keep following Christ now in the difficulty of life? Um, I, I recently got to go on a, a camping trip to the, to the North Shore with some friends of ours, and we were camping uh, pretty far north, like not too far from Grand Marais and um, we, th- okay, this, this has nothing to do with anything. I'm just telling you this cause it was fun. All right. So this is free. So we, we got to, uh, uh, we, we got to, to our campsite was like right along the water. And so at night we would go down to the beach and set up a fire right along the shore of superior and just hang out and talk life and look at the stars and you can see them up there. It's wild. Um, and one of the nights we were sitting there by the fire and I looked up and just went, wait, what? Yep. Northern Lights. Got to see the Northern Lights for the first time in my life. And I'm sitting by a fire with my friends, and the water's coming up, and I'm just looking at the Northern Lights. Guys, life is amazing. All right, so, so back on it. Um, so uh, we would camp, get up, make breakfast, and then we would just go on all these hikes and see all these beautiful places during the day. So one of the hikes that we went on was up to this place called Devil's Kettle which feels like a weird thing to talk about in church. But it's uh, it's just this waterfall that is, uh, it, it's kind of crazy and amazing because at the top, the reason it's called that is it splits and on one side there's a normal waterfall and on the other side there's a waterfall that just falls into like the center of the earth. It just like goes down into this abyss and you never see where it comes out. And it wasn't until a few years ago that they even figured out where this giant waterfall was going. And so it's just this crazy scene. And so we, we had to hike up there. And Katie Thompson, who's in our church, loves nature, has seen this before. And she was kind of leading our trip. And she's like, don't worry, guys, it's worth it. We're going to go up there. And so we go on this hike. But one thing I've learned when you're hiking is to pay attention to the faces of the people that have done the hike already. And if they're breathing normal, normally and look fine, it's like, all right, this is a good hike for you to do. But if they look like they're going to die on the trail, maybe don't do it. And the people that had just done this hike were not looking too good. And so I was nervous. And so we're, we're going, and then we get to the staircase, and there's like 200 stairs just straight up to the top. And if that sounds easy to you, you're one of those people, well, it's fine. It was hard for me. It's hard for normal people. So it's part of the illustration... So we start going up these steps, and Katie just periodically was yelling at us, Guys, it's beautiful at the top. Keep going. It's worth it. We're going to have an awesome day up there. Keep going. And you know what? I needed that. And because of that, we kept going, and it was worth it, and it was amazing. So, so here's the idea. When your journey is difficult, you need to look forward and see the beauty that's to come in order to realize that the journey is worth it. The Christian life right now is not the top of the waterfall, it's climbing the steps. And we need to look ahead to our future hope in Christ, that we'll get to live and reign with him in order to understand that it's worth it to keep going. Now here's what that hope doesn't do. It doesn't make life here easier. It's not like when Katie's calling out, hey guys, it's worth it that magically the hike gets shorter. That's not how it works. It just adds meaning to the hike because you know it's going somewhere. Same is true for walking with Jesus on this earth as we look forward to our hope in heaven. But here's what I see Christians doing. I see some of you when you're not sure if it's worth it to follow Christ, when you start to doubt or maybe Christianity isn't ex- as exciting as it used to be or you're caught in sin or people are questioning your beliefs, you start to wonder, will this ultimately make me happy? Will this be worth it? And in order to answer the question, you only look at your life right now to try to discover if Christianity is worth it, which would be the equivalent of of just looking around at hiking on the steps, but not knowing that there is a waterfall coming. If Katie went up to me and said, hey guys, we're going to go hike some steps today. I'm maybe going to do 10 of them out of friendship, but before 20, like I'm out. Because there's no point. I need the ultimate hope in order to provide the meaning to keep going. And so stop just looking at your current life now to determine whether following Jesus is worth it. Look ahead to your future reality in Christ to help you know that it's worth it to keep going. So let's look at this hope we have verse 11 again. This saying is trustworthy for if we die with him, we will also live with him. So in order to live with Christ forever, you first must die. That that death there means it means death to self. It's picking up your cross and following him. And here's why you need to die to self. It's because there only can be one ultimate love in your life. And the only people who will be in eternity with Jesus forever are the people who have that ultimate love in Him. And so Jesus calls you to die to all your other loves in comparison to your love for Him, which can hurt, it can be difficult. But even if it feels like he's killing you, he's actually healing you. Christianity in this life is not ibuprofen, it's hydrogen peroxide. It's not a painkiller. In fact, Christianity can sting a little bit when you put it on the wound, but it's helping to clean out the wound so that you can experience ultimate healing. And that healing will produce eternal life. Now, what will that eternal life be like? There's not enough time to fully dig into that in this sermon, but we get a little hint in verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. I want you to pay attention to that word reign there. Reign as in the way that a king reigns over a kingdom. It's royal terminology. A word with connotations of power, and of majesty, a a word that naturally belongs to Christ, right? If you were to say that Jesus will reign forever, that would make sense to us. But I want you to notice that here, the word reign is applied to you. It doesn't say that if we endure with him, we'll watch him reign forever. It doesn't say that if we endure with him, that we'll get to be subjects of his reign forever. It says that if we follow him for the rest of our lives, that we will get to reign with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Listen, if you trust Jesus for the rest of your life, you will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. It will be yours. God is going to remake this entire world into something categorically more beautiful than not only what you've seen, but what you could possibly imagine. And it will be yours. There, the streets will be made of gold, which might be literal, like they're literally made of gold, but it for sure means that in that place, beauty will never be sparse. It'll be ubiquitous. It'll be all over the place. It'll be overflowing with the the goodness and the dignity of God himself. That's what that place will be like. And let me reiterate, it will be yours. You will reign over it with Christ. He's giving you this new world. Not in the way that, like, if you've got a friend that's got a mansion and a pool that says, hey, come over any time. I'd love for you to come swimming with us or whatever. That'd be an incredible thing, but it's still not yours. You still don't feel the right to just go over whenever you want. You're still walking on eggshells, making sure you don't break anything, don't do anything wrong. No, the mansion is yours. You own it. The pool is yours. You can use it whenever you want. The new heavens and the new earth will be yours. You will rule and reign over new heavenly mountains. You will explore the recreated rocky mountains with Jesus, and you will claim them in his name. That's your hope. You will reign with Christ. But also look back at verse 12. It says, if we deny him, he also will deny us. Because of the infinite value of Christ, the loss of Jesus would be the most unspeakably awful thing that any of us have experienced. And I'm aware that a lot of us have experienced some really difficult things, but he is of infinite value, and losing him will be unimaginably difficult. So don't deny him. Don't turn from him. And I want you to notice If we deny him, he also will deny us. Notice that denying him does not mean that you will not ultimately stand before him and give an account for your life. Denying the the truthfulness of Christ does not make him untrue. He is fact, he is reality, whether you assent to that reality or not. I've heard, and I know some of you are kind of struggling with this idea, I don't know if I can believe in a God who, and fill in the blank, your, your objection to who Jesus is or to Christianity, the things that you find difficult about it, and you start to think, I've thought, I'm not sure if I can believe in a God like that. But that, that's almost assuming that you're not believing in him makes him cease to exist, As if your denial of him could affect his reality. But your assessment on his life is not the final word. It's the other way around. His assessment on your life is the final word. And if you deny him, he will deny you. So don't deny him. Please. When you're starting to lose hope, Don't give up on the only hope that you have. That's not the solution for loss of hope. Hold on. Hold on to him as he holds on to you. It will be worth it. Don't deny him. Now, when we talk about not denying Christ, what do we mean by denying him? I think when we hear the word deny, or at least when I think of that, I tend to think of denial with our lips, like with what we say maybe a dramatic deconversion, a deconstruction, or something like that, saying, I don't believe in Jesus, which is denial of him. But I think more often, and I think what Paul's talking about in this text, is denying Jesus with your life. Maybe still believing that you're following him, but not actually following him. So how do you fight against that type of denial? We'll look at chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. So there he says flee, and he says pursue. So let's look briefly at flee. There's an urgency here in the warning. Paul is telling you to run for your life. So, the question is, run from what? What do you need to be running from? Well, look, you need to run from your passions. So, he's probably referring here to uh, sexual immorality and to quarreling, which we'll talk about in a second, but he also leaves it broad, I believe, intentionally. You need to be suspicious of those passions that overwhelm you. When you sense an overwhelming desire for something come over you, that typically means that it's time to go the opposite direction, to run the opposite direction. Now, your instinct and all of modern sociological and moral thinking will be the opposite. So the ultimate sort of moral foundation and consideration right now is to look at what you believe to be true within yourself, to identify and then pursue your passions. And so it's this this idea that your happiness is correlated with your ability to pursue your internal passions, and so find out what your passions are and chase after them. But Jesus here is saying the exact opposite. He's saying that your passions will kill you. Your passions are a lion. You are the gazelle. Run. Get out of there. Don't trust them. We're fallen people with fallen passions. And one of the primary passions that Paul is telling us to run from might surprise you. It might not have been towards the top of your list of what you would expect. In these short letters, First and Second Timothy and Titus, Paul mentions avoiding quarreling or fighting 14 different times. That's a ton in these letters. It's one of the predominant pieces of advice that Paul is giving to Timothy and Titus as an example of something that will lead people astray, will lead people to walking away from Jesus. Look at verse 16. But avoid irreverent babble, what he later calls quarreling, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Do you see that? It's not just that, A little political argument here and there, a little bit of a fight with your spouse to make sure they know that you're right uh, doesn't really matter that much. It's saying it leads to ungodliness, and ungodliness leads to denial of Christ. So are there areas in your life that could be accurately described as quarrelsome? What about in your home? If you have roommates... Are you quarrelsome about how that home runs, <laughs> about how things should be organized? If you have a family, are you quarrelsome with your spouse or with your kids? Do you entice them towards anger? At work, are you fighting with your boss or your coworkers or your employees? On social media, are you quarrelsome? We don't engage with the fights of the world as Christians. We're not trying to win a culture war. We're trying to win people to this ultimate hope of Jesus, which means that we need to live differently. And so instead of pursuing your passions, pursue the passions of Christ, which are listed in verse 22. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Don't pursue your passions pursue the passions of Christ righteousness meaning the way things ought to be rightness goodness pursue those things faith love and peace now why why should we pursue what he wants instead of what we want well there what we want well there's a lot of reasons but one of them circling back to what we were talking about at the beginning is because following Jesus is a better life than following sin. Both into eternity and right now. Flip quickly over to chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, Okay, we could keep going. You can see the list that he gives there. But he's telling them to understand that there's some days coming that will be incredibly hard. It's what he calls times of difficulty. And so I want to ask the question, why will those times be times of difficulty? Well, he answers that. Notice at the end of verse 1, he says, Come times of difficulty for or because, so he's going to give the reason why those times will be difficult, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, and then he gives this sin list. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying when people are pursuing sin, when they're pursuing things other than Christ, when they're pursuing their self-interest, it becomes a terrible place to live. It becomes times of difficulty because that is not the way the world was designed to run. It's not the way we were designed to live. It's not the good life. See, I think most of us know that we should follow Jesus. But a lot of the time, even though we know we should follow Jesus and try to white knuckle it in our approach to following him, we want to sin. And we think what we should do and what we want are different things. Following Jesus is like eating broccoli. It's like it's good for you, you should do it, maybe you kind of like it, but you're not necessarily craving it. And sin is like chocolate cake, right? It's like you want it, you crave it, you desire it, even though you know it's maybe not good for you, it's not what you should be doing, or at least that's how we tend to think about the world. But I want to argue differently. I want to tell you that following Jesus is not only what you should do, it's the life you've always wanted. It's the best life that you can imagine. It's a hard life, it's a difficult life, but it's an incredibly good life. One of the best ways to know the viability of a moral construct is to run it through the thought experiment of what would the world be like if everyone lived according to this principle. So I just want to do that for a second. What would the world be like if all of us were lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy? The world would be a horrible place, filled with pain and fighting in conflict, in self-righteousness, in arrogance. It'd be this place of competition and bickering and fighting to get your way to the top only to be overthrown by somebody else who is doing the same. It'd be a world of abuse and neglect and trauma. It'd be a horrible world, an incredibly hard world to live in, one you wouldn't want to raise your kids in. But listen, what would a world be like of righteousness, of faith, and of love, and of peace? Righteousness, everyone being the way that they ought to be. Peace. What if there was peace between countries? What if there was peace between people of different socioeconomic classes? People of different races, people of different cultural backgrounds, people of different understandings of how to view the world. What if there was just trust and peace? Some of those divisions would start to break down. What if there was peace internally? What if instead of anxiety and kind of grinding it out, what if you just had this sense of wellness, of goodness, like everything would be okay? Peace in all of your relationships. It would be a beautiful, amazing world. That is the world that Jesus is leading you to. That is the better life of following Christ. Life is better in Jesus, both now and in eternity forever. And so don't give up on him. And he will never give up on you because he died for you. And then he rose from the grave so that you could rise from the grave one day too. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray for the grace to see, to believe in our bones that you are the good life, and I pray that we would not give up on the good life, that we wouldn't believe the lie of sin and selfishness that getting what we want is good, but instead that we would want you. would live in others-oriented life and would see the beauty of living that way. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would empower us to live like that, that you would empower us to live lives fully pleasing to you, that we wouldn't give in to quarrels and fighting and our passions, but that we would exercise self-control by your grace and live the life that you've called us to live. Jesus, thank you for raising from death and demonstrating your power so that we could have new life in you. Amen.